all you entrepreneurs and small business people, you're listening to the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. I'm Doris Nagel, your host for the next hour. The show has two goals, to share helpful information and resources. I have made so many mistakes as an entrepreneur over the past 20 or 30 years, and I've had lots of friends and clients make lots of mistakes. So if I can help you out there not make at least a few of those mistakes, then I've been successful. The second goal is to inspire. I found being an entrepreneur confusing and often lonely. Sometimes you have no idea if you're on the right track or not, or where to turn for good advice. So to help with both those goals, I have guests on the show every week who are willing to share their stories and advice. And this week's guest is Sona Shah. She is the CEO and co-founder of a company called Neopenda, which is doing some very interesting things to help address underserved markets with medical devices. Her story, I think, is going to be inspiring and wonderful to listen to. Sona, thanks so much for being on the show this week. Welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. I am too. I've spent most of my career, oh, a good chunk of my career in the medical device world. So I have at least a tiny inkling of some of the challenges you faced. And I think the place to start really is to talk a little bit about what Neopenda does. What do you make and sell and who are the buyers you're targeting? Yeah, absolutely. Um, if it's okay, Doris, I might introduce a little bit about my background because it might help set the stage for why we created the appendix. Well, absolutely, yes, because that was the next question I was going to ask you. Wonderful, thanks. So uh, thank you again for having me. Um, I am an engineer by background, so I graduated from Georgia Tech more than a few years ago, but we won't go into that. Um, no, 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 we, we <laughs> won't. We won't. <laughs> I did my chemical engineering degree and graduated a semester early and thought, why not do something a bit different before starting to work in pharma? Um, so I went to Western Kenya and I was a teacher at a primary school. Um, nothing to do with my engineering background but loved it nonetheless and was there for several months and just really, really loved the culture of the community. Everything about it was incredible, except for the inequities uh, that I saw that I was fortunate not to have growing up. Um, so that stuck with me for a little bit and certainly is shaping what I'm doing today. But fast forward, I had a job lined up at a pharmaceutical company, so I entered into a totally different world of research and development at a large um, corporate in America. And uh, so I was there for a little over two years using more of that chemical engineering background, really loved healthcare, really loved engineering, working with bioreactors. The medications that we were making were being used in clinical trials, and so got to see a number of really incredible medications go through the pipeline. But what I found myself thinking is that my kids in Kenya may never see the medications that I was helping make. And that inequity ate away at me enough that I went back to graduate school to somehow figure out how to provide more equitable access to healthcare around the world. Didn't know that I'd end up with a startup, but here we are. Um, met my now <laughs> co-founder, Tess, while we were both getting our master's in biomedical engineering at Columbia University and took a biodesign course together and started thinking about newborn mortality and why it's so much higher in low resource settings than it is here in the US. And ultimately that became Neopenda. So we design medical technologies for emerging markets and I'm sure I'll get more into the product and uh, the company and what we do, but just wanted to give you some context to start off with. Wow. So what a great story. It looked like from your website that you have a product that you are now selling. Is that right? Yes. How did you decide to come up with the first product? Because the needs are just so huge. It's yeah. almost daunting, I'm imagining, to even know where to start. Yeah, I completely agree. So when we were at Columbia, um, we took this biodesign course that kind of directed us towards newborn mortality in particular. So we kind of had a narrow focus to begin with. But there's really only so much that you can do from a lab in New York when our markets were in Africa. So we got some funding from the university, traveled out to Uganda and did a needs assessment. Most of our time was spent in the newborn wards, the neonatal wards. And we would find that there were just far too many critically ill patients and not enough nurses to help care for them. Um, so if I could interrupt, Sona, yeah. what were the 
the biggest limitations? Was it caregivers? Was it power? Was it medicine? All of the above? All of the above, really. Um, So the biggest issue that we saw was just that there was a room that nurses called the equipment graveyard. And it's honestly just a room that uh, is full of broken medical equipment because equipment gets donated from countries like the U.S. and it doesn't work because it requires continuous power, which most of our hospitals don't have. Or uh, I had one nurse tell me at one point that it's a fully functional incubator, but the uh, instructions were in German and she doesn't speak German, so she had no idea how to use it. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so this equipment graveyard is real. It's pretty much in every facility that we went to. um, And that was why we created Neopenda to design medical technologies that actually function in any environment and that are designed fit for purpose with an initial focus in Africa. Um, So it was uh, severely constrained. You know, the room, the first hospital that I went to, there were 150 patients, two nurses. Um, So certainly a staff shortage in these wards. They don't have equipment to be able to care for the patients that actually need it. And uh, medications were pretty scarce. And, you know, they didn't always know what medications needed to be stocked in the facilities because there just wasn't access to any of the data, access to any equipment that really can help um, with these issues. I spent a lot of time with Baxter, Cardinal Health, Fresenius, and I even worked in the international with international distributors for those countries. And I spent a lot of time helping distributors and the and the business units in a lot of countries. But I have to say, maybe there was a distributor in Egypt and South Africa, but that's about it. So I, I'm guessing that's not atypical for the big medical device companies. Typically, you'd have a distributor who would teach the clinicians how to use it and would keep a stock of spare parts and that sort of thing. But the big companies just don't really have a presence for the most part in a lot of African countries, right? You know, I think this is changing and this is certainly not the case for everybody, but I've had my fair share of investors, for example, that think of Africa as one country that's very poor. Um, And that's a misconception that we work very hard to fight against. There's a lot of opportunity. There is over a billion people on the continent. And so there's such a massive need for technologies that actually exist there. But to your point, a lot of med device companies have kind of flown over Africa because they don't see the, the market opportunity. So that's why we're different. We see the biggest opportunity in emerging markets where these technologies just don't exist. Um, So we are starting to see a change. Med device companies are paying more attention to the African continent. I think what becomes really challenging is designing a product that actually functions in these environments, because most of the time we see large med device companies will come in with technologies that work in the U.S. and then try to adapt it, but it doesn't actually work. Yeah. Um, So why don't they work? Well, you know, for starters, we have our vital signs monitor NeoGuard. Um, Part of the reason we're different is because we don't rely on continuous power. We're all familiar with kind of the big traditional multi-parameter patient monitors that you would find in an ICU in a hospital, for example. Those all require continuous power. Um, What happens if you don't have that power? Can the devices function? (laughs) What happens if you don't have spare parts that are locally available? If something breaks down, it takes months to be able to get a replacement in. So there's a lot of unique challenges that exist in most of the world, actually 85% of the world's population that lives in low and middle income countries. And those are the constraints that we design for. Um, what happens if dust and humidity and environmental conditions impact the products um, that are in these environments? Um, we don't have as you know controlled air condition in a lot of facilities. Um, dust gets into everything. Oh, um, so yeah. How do we design equipment that actually functions with and for the users that need it? Who are the customers for your products? I mean, at some level, you need to convince someone to actually buy these products, right? Yeah. So customers are, um, as is true with, you know, healthcare stakeholders all over the world, um, usually the payers are different from the users. And uh, as you mentioned before with distribution partners, that is kind of the common approach. So our actual customer is a distributor who then resells it to 
facilities, hospitals. Um, so often what we find in, in African countries is that the facilities are divided into the public sector and the private sector. Um, the public sector usually has some kind of government affiliation, whether it's county level or ministry of health level. Uh, and then the private sector is usually subdivided into a private not-for-profit sector that's usually faith-based or a private for-profit. So, you know, typical of the, the traditional for-profit private institutes that you'd think of. So there are different types of end facilities that we can target with our system. But in all cases, uh, we sell through a distributor who knows these markets well and has access to all of these different hospital customers. How did you assess the demand for the product? I mean, at one level, hospitals in these countries, I'm sure, look at some of these uh, medical products that are on the market and think, oh, this would be wonderful, but maybe it's not at a price they can afford or doesn't have features that make it sustainable for them. So how did you tackle that one? Yeah, so affordability was one of our biggest design constraints. Um, our model at Neopenda is very much that we're a for-profit entity where um, we equally care about profits and impact. Uh, so the more devices that we can sell, the more profitable we are as a company and the more uh, impact we can have as a company. The yeah. caveat there is affordability. Um, so by design, we have made the system much more simple to use. We've taken out a lot of the expensive components and really designed it to be something that is actually affordable for these communities, but still we maintain a healthy profit margin. You mentioned something I wanted to follow up on. You have a mission to do good, but also are for profit. And I, I happen to notice on your website, it says Neopenda is a public benefit corporation. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about that form of company because it's I think it's not one that that everybody necessarily thinks about. People talk about LLCs and S corporations, but talk about the public benefit corporation and how you decided to choose that and what implications that has for your business. Yeah, absolutely. So because we care about equal impact and profitability, we structured ourselves as a public benefit corporation, which is a legal structure that allows me as an owner to make decisions both on fiduciary duty, but also based on the impact. And so there are times that I can legally make decisions that are more impactful or legally make decisions that are more profitable. Um, and it also signals to our partners, our investors, our stakeholders of the, the type of company that we have instituted. For all you know, intents and purposes, and I'm not, um, you know, an, a, I'm not a CPA, but my understanding is that a public benefit corporation is the same tax structure as a C-Corp. Um, ah. It allows me to make similar decisions for impact um, as well as profit. So it's a, largely a signaling thing. It uh, helps attract the right people to the company, not the people that are looking to maximize on um, profitability at the um you know, with, with impact just being shoved to the corner, it, it really makes sure that those go hand in hand for us. Yeah, I just, I thought it was worth touching on that because, you know, a lot of the guests that I have on the show, because of my focus on underrepresented entrepreneurs, women entrepreneurs and people of color and people who are doing socially important things, I thought, it you know, it was worth chatting about that just for a minute because I, I'm not sure if it's, a structure that this is top of mind for everybody when they're setting up their company. So if it's available in your state, which it is, I guess, in, in Illinois, you know, it's worth looking into. Yeah, we registered as a Delaware Public Benefit Corporation, but we are um, registered to do business in Illinois. And so I would definitely encourage others to consider this structure. There is another structure called um, a benefit corporation. So Public Benefit Corporation, PBC, is a legal entity. Um, a benefit corporation is kind of a status of a company. So think companies like Patagonia, for example, they're benefit corporations where they also care about, you know, a public benefit, but it's not necessarily built into their legal structure. Um, there's kind of this rigorous uh 
pathway that you would go down to qualify to become a benefit corporation. Um, so there is a distinction between the two. If you're looking for a legal entity, public benefit corporation is something I'd recommend looking into. I know in Illinois, there are different structures. I think L3C is maybe a different one um, that has some elements of impact built into it or a public benefit built into it. So different states have different structures. Public benefit corporation, in my understanding, was one of the more common ones across the U.S. Yeah, well, thanks for that. That's that's very interesting. I'm curious about how you found distributors in Africa. Was it difficult? I mean, uh, what do you look for in the distributors and how do you find them? Yeah, so distributors are a really essential uh, component of our business because there are 54, 55 countries in Africa. We don't want to put team members um, in every single country because that's really expensive and not really a scalable way to grow. So distributors are a really good way for us to actually be able to scale our efforts and not have to have a presence in every country that we'd like to enter into. Finding a distribution partner, it, because that's how hospitals typically uh, get their medical equipment, it's usually not too difficult to identify potential distribution partners. Where it does become difficult is the vetting process and making sure that it's the right relationship for the organization. We very much appreciate our distribution partners and went through a pretty thorough vetting process. Um, uh, both of the distributors that we have in Kenya and Uganda, uh, we've known for quite some time. And so we've kind of built relationship with them over the years as we've been developing the NeoGuard system. But uh, beyond that, as, as we go into new countries, one of the first things that we do is try to engage with dis potential distribution partners, as that's a really good way to get to know a new country, as well as uh, just have boots on the ground. And so it is one of the more difficult um, tasks in going to new countries is just establishing that type of relationship. But once you do find the right partner, uh, then, then they're a really good way to scale your efforts. Yeah, a good distributor can really make or break your sales and, you know, market penetration efforts. So how many countries are you selling in now? So officially, we've launched in Kenya. Our first devices are getting uh, delivered to Uganda the next month. So we're really excited to be formally launching. We do have quite a bit of ongoing work in Uganda. So we've had a soft launch for quite some time. Um, but we do have ongoing efforts in Ghana, Tanzania, Ethiopia, Nigeria, South Africa. So quite a number of countries in Africa. Part of our approach is to conduct pilots or to do some small-scale work in a country to help us figure out whether it's a country that we'd like to launch in and really start scaling our efforts. So we aren't focused as much on how many countries can we be in. It's a lot more of how deep can we go into the countries that we already exist in. So we're in Kenya and Uganda and then have a presence in about five other countries as well. Wow, amazing. You know, I'm interested in the production process. So the design process, it certainly helped that you were an engineer but I'm sure that had its own challenges. But then you have to figure out how you're going to get it manufactured and also the supply chain issues. How did you tackle those issues? Hmm. Hire someone that's way smarter than I am and knows what they're doing. <laughs> um, so manufacturing, we, we turn to a lot of other startups in Chicago that are hardware focused. We're also based out of M-Hub, um, which focuses on hardware technologies. And so there's a lot of mentors that we turn to when we were looking for potential manufacturing partners. Um, our manufacturer is based in Malaysia. We were originally introduced through another startup in Chicago that was doing some hardware work in Malaysia. Um, Malaysia as well. Um, but as part of the vetting process, we did do on-site audits. We had third parties go in and do audits. Um, we looked for certain qualifications. ISO 1345, for example, was a big qualification for us for medical devices. And so there were certain aspects that we looked for in a supplier. We also wanted a manufacturer that was able to encompass the full range of product from plastics to electronics. Um, and was able to kind of manage that and grow alongside us. So not just be able to handle low volume production, but also high volume production once we get there. So yeah. um, there were a number of things that we looked at. We vetted quite a few uh, manufacturing partners or potential manufacturing partners, even in the U.S. as well, um, received quotes, looked at their quality, looked at the support that they would provide, and ultimately ended up with the, the manufacturing partner that we have currently. And it's been um, a really great partnership. But uh, having 
having somebody on our team that is very familiar with manufacturing and supply chain and understands design for manufacturing and um, has worked with overseas suppliers, that has been really instrumental for us. You know, Malaysia was one of the first places that a lot of the medical device companies turned to when manufacturing started offshoring. And even though some of those operations now have been closed, the expertise remains. And interesting how Malaysia and and other countries too have been able to take advantage of that and, and pivot to other things. So how how does the supply chain work? I mean, does it drop ship them from Malaysia? Because bringing it all the way to the U.S. and then back around to Africa is maybe not the most efficient, but then you don't always have the ability to inspect the product and make sure that what you think is getting sent is actually sent. Yeah, so we uh, we ship directly from Malaysia to the destination. So we don't come through the U.S. for a variety of reasons, um, including cost and time and all sorts of other things. To make sure that we do have the quality aspects of it, um, there's quite a number of quality inspections that we do at the manufacturing site itself. So we have come up with our own quality inspection records that the manufacturer has to fill out and complete. Upon receipt in country, our distributor also does a number of quality inspections, uh, both upon receipt seat and before they deliver to our end customer. And we have access to all of these records. And so we're reviewing the records in parallel from our manufacturing site and our distribution partners. Um, But the supply chain is directly from Malaysia to the end destination. Wow. That's amazing. I'm not sure if everybody listening on the show actually understands what a feat that is to set up and put in place that I'm impressed. Talk about some of the regulatory issues. I mean, since it doesn't touch the U.S., most healthcare companies complain at some point about the FDA and all of their regulations. So I guess that's not relevant, but there still are probably some regulations in place. How did you sort through those? Yeah, so we hold ourselves to the same level of safety, efficacy, and quality that you can expect here in the U.S. or any other high-income country. We do not have to go through FDA um, if if we pursue CE mark, which is the European version of FDA. Most of our markets in Africa are more familiar with CE mark, uh, and it was a more suitable pathway for our product, which again is a wearable vital signs monitor. So, mm-hmm. in the U.S., it would be um, or. Our classification uh, for CE Mark is a class 2B product. It would be a class 2 product here in the U.S. as well. So it is a pretty rigorous process, um, and it took us six years to go from kind of initial conception. Six of the years? Idea. Yep, six years. But that, uh, to be fair, that was also while we were still in grad school. So if you knock a year off of that, it's been five years full time um, that we did R&D from, you know, initial concept all the way through uh, getting clearance. Um, so the actual submission part was relatively painless, but that's because we had spent the the beginning years really de- uh, creating our design and development process, um, getting ISO 1345 certification, the quality management system um, was really important for us, going through many iterations of the product, many clinical trials, both in the U.S. and in Africa. And then once we were ready for submission, then it was kind of just a lot of writing and culmina- culmination into our technical file. But yeah, it took, it took quite some time. Um, and again, to be fair, a lot of it was because we were building things for the very first time. So, you know, now that we've got our system in place uh, and we are ISO 1345 certified, we have a manufacturer, um, our next product won't take us that long because we've already, we've developed the system already. Yeah, you've put in place the foundation for and the frame of the house, really. And now you're just framing out a new room, basically. I, I'm just astounded, though. Again, for people who aren't in the medical device world, what you've accomplished is truly astonishing. And people may not, may not appreciate it because you make it sound so easy. <laughs> it is. Um, there were many, many trials and tribulations along the way. So um, it's certainly worth it, but it was not, uh, it was not painless. <laughs> I'm sure not. Medical devices are an expensive area to make headway in. So talk about how you found funding for the products and for Neopenda. 
Yeah. So definitely, you know, creating medical devices for uh, the African continent creates a lot of challenges in the funding realm because we are a highly regulated business that involves hardware in a geography that a lot of people don't understand. Um, so when we talk about funding, you know, traditionally for medical devices, it would be pretty, I, I dare to say, simple um, if you had a medical device that was focused in the U.S. because a lot of people understand the U.S. markets. Um, and so it's easier to go through the process. But as soon as we throw in the African context, <laughs> a lot of people don't understand med devices. And on the flip side, a lot of investors that do understand Africa don't understand med devices. Um, they don't understand the regulatory piece. They don't yeah. understand hardware. Um, and so it's a really tough balance to find that funding. Fortunately for us, we've been able to secure, you know, a few million dollars at this point in funding um, through both non-dilutive sources and dilutive sources. So early on, we were able to uh, to get funding from competitions and prizes. Um, so Vodafone of America's foundation, Cisco, um, a lot of the large corporates were really interested in the work that we were doing and infused uh, non-dilutive capital into us to just kind of get going with the idea. And so a lot of people invested. I, by in the, by the way, I, I, I don't mean to interrupt you again, but the list of prizes that you've won through competitions is astounding on your website. Good for you. Congrats. Thank you. It's um, we just certainly wouldn't be where we are without the support of you know some of the early funders that really took a gamble on uh, Tess and I and the idea that we had um, even you know in the very early stages of what we're doing. So certainly support uh, grateful for the support. Yeah, and it looks like um, you also maybe did some crowdfunding at yeah. at one point or are still doing some through was it republic Yep. Yeah. So we did do some crowdfunding, which um, originally was actually a way to also crowdsource ideas from people. And so um, just to get other people involved in kind of our efforts and then it took off. And so it was actually a pretty great way to fund some of our initiatives as well. So we did go through Republic. Um, we uh, went through a couple of accelerator programs early on as well. Um, so Techstars, Founders Factory, Pulse MS Challenge. And so there were a number of different programs that infused capital into us. And then more recently in the past couple of years, um, we have gone down the investor route as well um, because we value both the uh, the impact and the monitoring and evaluation that comes with grants, um, but we also value the business acumen that comes along with investment. So um, very much appreciate kind of that dual approach of, of diluted and non-dilutive capital. Um, but more recently, we've been doing more traditional funding rounds. Well, you have kind of, tapped into all of the major funding sources or a number of them, what have you learned along the way? What advice would you offer to people who are trying to be successful at pitch competitions or pitching to traditional investors or crowdfunding? Yeah, so I think every um, know your audience is kind of the first piece of advice that I would give there. Um, so do your homework, do your research on who is in the audience when you are pitching, whether it's an investor or a grant organization, they're looking at different elements. And so while it's still your company and still your business, maybe for grant purposes, you focus more on the impact that you can have. And for investors, you focus more on how you can make investors money. So there's a different element. Of course, the impact will be embedded into the story that you tell investors and you know the sustainability into the story that you tell grant funders. But knowing your audience is one of the biggest pieces that I would recommend early on. And then catering what your messaging is to those audiences. The second piece is um, don't be afraid of doing a little education um, you know a lot of people may not know your space and you know your space better than they probably ever will and so just know that when people are asking questions it's it's not necessarily to to be condescending to you it's really to try to understand your markets a little bit better and so build that into your pitch narrative a little bit more the questions that you commonly get from people start to iterate your your pitch and your story and your narrative because those are the questions that everybody will be asking and so the more and more you can address it head on the more it appears that you know what you're doing and that you have kind of tackled some of the bigger issues good at doing that? Is it just doing it over and over again or finding a good accelerator to 
give you the right feedback or friends that give you feedback? I hate pitching in front of friends, so I wouldn't recommend that. Some people are really great at it. But, um, for me, I feel like I do much better in a room of strangers um, than I do if it's a room full of, you know, a friendly audience that I know. Um, but I think that's a personal preference. I do think accelerators are a really great way to gain some of that experience and expertise. Um, there are some accelerators that really focus on, you know, a demo day and gear you up for a pitch. And um, I've literally been in some pitch practice where people are throwing, you know, napkins and all sorts of things at you just to get you into the realm of just keep going and keep pitching no matter what comes your way. <laughs> throwing napkins um, at you. Okay. Yeah, yeah quite literally. Um, and so accelerators can be really helpful for that. Um, I will just caution you that pitching isn't the only thing that matters. It's also about the content that goes into the pitch because it's great if you can exude confidence, um, but if there's no actual meat, if there's no substance behind what you're pitching, people will see right through it. And so accelerators are good for pitching and getting you into um, the mindset of what content is important, but you still have to do the hard work of actually generating um, the traction that is necessary to go into a pitch. I do recommend just kind of rehearsing, whether it's with yourself, with friends, uh, various pitch competitions, and be very receptive to feedback. Um, so anything that people ask you and, and give you questions on, think about, oh, is that a real legitimate question that I can actually use to grow my business and therefore my pitch? or is this an indicator that maybe this isn't the right funder for me? Um, yeah. So parsing that out is really important, um, but the stuff that's good can actually help you grow your business. Well, I'm particularly curious about the crowdfunding piece because I have heard a lot of entrepreneurs think that crowdfunding is something easy. You know, you just sort of throw your site out there and people are going to throw money at it. And having had a the manager and creator of uh, one crowdsource funding platform, he finally closed it down because he said so many entrepreneurs are so unrealistic about it that it's just, it, it just was very frustrating. Talk about how that process differs from traditional pitching and some of the things that you need to think about to be successful there. Yeah, um, you're, you're reaching a different audience there. You're reaching um, an audience that may not know much about investing, that may not know much about the markets that you're in, but they are in some ways an easier target in terms of just being able to sell them the vision of why you're doing what you're doing. So people have different reasons for why they would uh, go into a crowdfunding campaign um, or why they would give money, whether it's donation or uh, through an equity platform there's different reasons why people do it and you have to figure out what are those reasons. So building that narrative is super, super important. Crowdfunding takes a ton of work. Um, it's not just kind of the upfront time of creating your pitch to a variety of stakeholders or the audience that might be out there. There's kind of the ongoing media presence that you have to have. There's providing updates through along the way. There's kind of the aftermath and all of the legal aspects of what you're doing. So it's a ton of work. And if you don't, um, you know, I think whenever uh, people ask me now about crowdfunding, if you aren't willing to spend at least 50% of your time, it doesn't have to be everyone on the team, but there has to be at least a dedicated person for the crowdfunding campaign. Wow. Um, if you're not spending 50% of your time, you're probably not going to do super well unless it's kind of a home run idea. That should be sobering for people listening who think it's a slam dunk way to raise a bunch of money. Yeah, it's a it's a lot of work and it's definitely worth it in some ways. I think all of the campaigns that we've done have been really beneficial for us. But um, every time we consider a crowdfunding campaign, we do consider what's the opportunity cost. I could be spending all of this other time growing my business and doing other aspects or the, the media articles are still really good even five years later. Um, so, you know, is it worth going through all of those efforts? Because it is a lot of time that you'll have to take in kind of developing your social media plan and developing how you're going to reach out to people and follow up with them and just keep the momentum going. Um, the other advice that I had gotten early on, which I would certainly give to others, is if you are planning on doing a crowdfunding campaign, 
I would recommend getting to 30% of your goal even before you launch. Um, so whether oh. that's soft circling from friends and family or other people that you know that are willing to contribute, that first day that you launch is really, really important. So find people that are willing to do it on day one because the more momentum and excitement you get on day one, um, the more that the platforms will feature you and you'll get picked up by news articles and other all sorts of other things. Nobody wants to be the first. They want to know that they're on to the hot thing, right? Right, exactly. Well, those are great pieces of advice. What so far has been the best part about having your own business? There's a million things that I love about it. Um, A million things that are challenging because it never leaves your mind. (laughs) But um, I think what I love about it one of my favorite parts of it is really being able to define the strategy and pave the way for things that just haven't been done before. Of course, we lean on the backs of, um, you know, all sorts of people that have shaped the space, um, but not very many people are focusing on medical devices in Africa. And so everything is new and challenging, but that also means that you're doing something that is drastically different and making a difference. And that has been really exciting for us. Having that for-profit entity that cares about impact has been really great. Um, You know, I can wake up every morning and still say, you know, I'm doing this because I can help improve quality of care for patients around the world. And I actually see the impact of that when I see devices on patients and hear the stories that nurses are telling us. I know that we're making a difference. I know that we're solving a real pain point and it's not just another gimmick, um, another, you know, tech that's cool, but doesn't actually have a problem that needs it. So I love having a company where you can guide and um, shape the vision of it. Um, But of course that comes with all sorts of um, anxiety of because you're shaping it, you can't fail because you're not only setting precedent for Neopenda as a company, you're setting precedent for medical device companies in Africa and other (laughs) female founded companies and all sorts of other things. So it adds a lot of pressure. (laughs) Having worked in healthcare, as I mentioned, I will agree with you. I think people who work in healthcare, all aspects of it are genuinely motivated by the fact that they're not, they know they're helping people, but most of them never get to see up close and personal the ways that it's helping patients, probably the way you have. I'm imagining you hear stories from patients that really help you, remind you every month or every few weeks when you hear one that you're really making a difference. Yeah, and it is really nice. You know, one of the things that really rejuvenates me is um, I'm normally based in Chicago, but now that things are opening up again, I, I travel back to Kenya quite frequently. And one of the things that really rejuvenates me is just being in the hospitals and spending time there and just seeing how the devices are being used. Not all feedback is going to be positive feedback, but there is a ton of positive feedback. And I think that's what keeps us going. So just being with our users and being able um, to interact with the parents and the users of the devices. That's been, it's really what keeps a lot of us going. Are you able to track any sort of metrics in terms of, you know, numbers of infants whose lives were saved or life expectancy or any of those kinds of things? Because I'm sure over time, the numbers are going to be, if you could collect them accurately, would be pretty persuasive. Yeah, absolutely. And that's definitely something that we're working towards. Um, We're always very cautious about saying, uh, you know, live saved because vital signs monitor, while it's absolutely essential, it still also requires nurse intervention. If I can tell a nurse that this patient has low oxygen saturation, they still have to intervene and provide oxygen to the patient at the right time. So we're really careful about, you know, claiming anything around live save because there's a multitude of different things that have to happen to actually save a life. Of course, there are anecdotes of, I wouldn't have known that this patient needed to be resuscitated without the device. And so there's a lot of anecdotal stories around that. Um, One of the things that we look at more immediately is utilization of devices. So are nurses actually putting these devices on patients and for how long? Um, Because the theory is that we know that vital signs monitoring improves patient outcomes. There's lots of studies that vital signs monitoring does that and decreases length of a stay in a facility. Um, So what we are proving is we're 
a vital signs monitor that has equal impact as other vital signs monitors on the market, potentially even more because of the markets that we're operating in where they don't have access to vital signs monitors. So there are kind of proxies that we can look at. We care very deeply about utilization. If the nurses like it, they are obviously seeing value, otherwise they wouldn't be using the product. And then we are doing longer term cost effectiveness, clinical impact trials. So we have one that's ongoing right now, for example, in Kenya, it's a year long study. Um, so there's all sorts of trials that we have planned for kind of ongoing impact metrics. So what's next for Neopenda? And where do you see the business being maybe two to three years from now? Yeah. So what's next for us is we would like to become known as the medical device company for emerging markets. So NeoGuard wow. is, of course, is what we envision to be many products. So we're well on our way to uh, adapting NeoGuard for different use cases, but also creating a pipeline of complementary products. Of course, that's not going to happen in you know a year or two years, um, but we are well on our way to, to developing that pipeline so that in five years from now, when we, when, you know, maybe I'm on the show again, I can talk a little bit about the journey <laughs> of becoming a multi-product company. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, it just occurs to me, there's, there's so many different ways you could grow that you, you have to be, I'm sure, really careful about how you manage the growth because there's so many countries that could use your products, but that takes bandwidth and mm -hmm. there's lots more products that are needed. So that's why I was curious about your strategy for growth. Yeah, it's kind of a combination of geographic expansion and product development. So we've got both um, a robust business team and a robust uh, R&D team. And so the R&D team is kind of focused on managing customers and making sure that, um, you know, we the product is meeting their needs. But now they're also starting to transition into uh, what's next in terms of what, what new products can we be working on. Our business team is, of course, also very in tune with our customers. Um, and making sure that we are serving their needs beyond the product, but just more generally, uh, and that we're looking at how do we expand from one country to two to five to 10. Um, yeah, so but as you say, the foundation you've built right. will make every incremental country or incremental product, I, I'm sure there'll be challenges, but the first enchilada was a pretty big one. Yep. And so, so I'm sure that's an exciting part of the business. Yeah, it absolutely is. I think we're at a fun transition now where we can start thinking about what's next and how do we grow. You know, before it was all focused on how do we launch NeoGuard and what does it what does <laughs> right. it mean to go from idea to right. sale? Um, how do we make money? How can we keep money yeah. coming in? Yeah, customers that are paying that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And now it's actually transitioning to, okay, we, we have a product. We know people like it. We know how to sell it. We know how to be sustainable. How do we amplify that? How do we yeah. do it as effectively and quickly as we can? Well, one of the reasons I really was excited about having you on the show, Sona, is that you're the CEO and co-founder in the med tech world. And to date still, although there are lots of women who work in med tech companies and in healthcare in general, there are still very, very few women CEOs and founders of medical device, med tech, healthcare companies. Why do you think that is? It's a good question. And I think there's a number of different factors. You know, I think generally in the healthcare space, you do see a lot of females, not necessarily in the startup ecosystem, but certainly in the healthcare space, we see a lot of females just because there is um, kind of that impact and empathy element to the healthcare industry. For startups in particular, I think because this is purely speculation, but I, I was oh, I'm asking kind of, for your personal experience and your anecdotal yeah. evidence. That's all you can give. Yeah. So I think I think one of the things that has really helped me is having a really supportive community around me. You know, my husband has been a huge advocate of Neopenda for since we started and this was before we were married. And um, so having a partner that really empowers me to to be the person that I want to be, to grow the company that I want it to grow into, that has been really instrumental. And I think that's sometimes difficult for other females is having that support network. It doesn't have to be a partner. It could be, you know, a co-founder. Um, that's been really instrumental as well. Just having somebody to bounce ideas off of and know that we're not going through it alone. 
So just finding that network can be challenging for other females, especially at different stages of life. Females do have to encounter, we do get different questions from investors, for example. We all know the statistics about um, how many female founders actually get funding versus male. It's ridiculously low. I, the numbers keep going down now. It's less than 2%, yeah. which is to me is just absolutely outrageous. And uh, right. I, I'm dumbfounded. So talk about that. Yeah. How is the experience different in your opinion? You know, it's really difficult for me to answer that, um, primarily because we are such an atypical company. Um, again, med devices in Africa is not something that most people know about. Most investors don't have a thesis for that. Thankfully, we found some new investors that uh, have that kind of focus. Assiduity Capital, for example, is one of our newest investors, and they've been super supportive because they understand the space, but most people don't. So for me, it's really difficult to parse out when you get a no from an investor, whether it's because there is any sort of bias um, with gender or if it's just they don't. Right, because they don't understand it or they think it's not viable or they think it's crazy or throwing money out the window or whatever, right? Right. I will say, though, that I have gotten my fair share of inappropriate comments during investor pitches or in preparation. Yeah, it's it's um yeah, it's it's not the greatest, but um, there's thankfully, you know, a handful of them, but a handful more than there should be. <laughs> How do we address that, though? I mean, given that you've been through all sorts of different funding approaches and been through a lot of different experiences. How do we make it better for our fellow women? Uh, I think the education piece, you know, if you're not um, directly in a startup and pitching to other investors, but you know the space quite well, I think educating other investors about the importance of having, you know, gender diversity and thinking with a gender lens, even if your fund isn't female focused, it doesn't have to be, but at least making sure that you're cognizant of it. If you end up with, you know, 10 startups that you invest in and none of them are female led, there's a problem in your sourcing and there's a problem throughout the way. And so I think there's just more education, more advocacy around that um, for investors and encouraging them to kind of look at their numbers and look at their statistics and make a conscious effort to include diversity in all aspects of the word, um, include diversity in their process. I think that's really important. Um, If you are a female founder, I would say, you know, just keep going. Um, Don't let the Don't let the handful of people that are naysayers for some ridiculous reason or another be um, the Debbie Downers for you. Just kind of move (laughs) them to the side and say, well, I can't wait to prove you wrong. Um, And, you know, don't let them get to you. There's enough people to tell you no, but all you need is that one person who's going to tell you you can do it. Um, And there's plenty of those people out there. Good for you. And that's great advice. Well, looking back on your journey so far, What advice would you give to your younger self if you knew what you knew now? It's a good question. Um, I mean, I think one of the things that has certainly stuck with me from the very beginning is finding a problem that's worth solving. You know, I think it's it seems very intuitive once you say it, but I think a lot of people start with really cool tech and then they find a problem that, you know, can actually, the tech is applicable <laughs> for. And it sounds so ridiculous saying it, but so many people do that. Um, start with a problem, start figuring out what problem you want to solve and then create technologies or leverage technologies to be able to solve that problem. So it's not something that I would necessarily say is advice for doing something different, but I do think that I, I would give that advice to future entrepreneurs is find a problem that's worth solving and then just be very, very resilient because there's going to be so many people that throw hurdles your way and there are so many challenges. But if you really found a problem that's worth solving, you'll find a way to move mountains. And I think just having that resilience is something that I've had to learn over time. I am sort of glad that I didn't know what was (laughs) required to create a medical device. (laughs) Um, I think, you know, learning that journey has made me much more resilient. And, um, you know, if somebody told me from day one that it would take seven years to get to where we are today, then that's a pretty long amount of time, but I don't regret any part of it. How do you become more resilient? Do you think? In fact, I was, I'm just reading a book on sports and 
just general performance. And they, they talk about the importance of resiliency is such a key piece of success in, in sports performance or performance in the arts, for example. And here you are saying it with respect to entrepreneurs and I believe all of it. So how do you become more resilient? Do you think? So I think for me, I, and this isn't true for everybody, but for me, I am uncomfortable with stability. And so I think that if we're not, we're not taking enough risks, if we are in a stable place, taking risks also means that we fail uh, and failing fast, failing quickly and learning from it is one of the best ways that I've learned to become resilient. That doesn't mean that everything we do is a failure, but everything we do, there is a learning opportunity. If we do it well, great, there's a way that you can do it better. If you fail, that's fine. What can we learn about that process to kind of make sure that we don't make that mistake again or that we can apply it to something else? So just failing fast and not not shying away from taking risks, I think is a really good way to become resilient because it will help you identify some of the challenges or the problems with the way that you're approaching something. Um, and not everything is gonna be a slam dunk and you're not gonna get it right on the first try every time and that's okay. But I think that's what builds resilience is trying something, not being afraid to take that risk, knowing of course what the consequences are, don't do something stupid, but <laughs> know what the consequences are and take risks that are appropriate for whatever stage you're at. Yeah, I, I love what you said about if you're in a comfortable place, you're not taking enough risk. It's an amazing quote. Well, our time is up. It flew by as I guessed it would. So now let people know how they can learn more about Neopenda, whether they're interested in just the good work that you're doing. Maybe they want to invest in the company. You know, what should they know? How should they connect with you and learn more? Yeah, absolutely. So if you're interested in investing, definitely reach out to me. Um, email is probably the quickest way. It's my first name, Sona, S-O-N as in Nancy A, at neopenda.com. Um, and either way, if you're, you know, an uh, aspiring entrepreneur, feel free to reach out. Um, there's plenty of mistakes that I've made along the way and lots of lots of things that I would love to share um, with any of you. So feel free to reach out to me uh, if there are any questions. That's a very generous offer. And thank you so much for your time today and your insights and your inspiration. It was really a delight having you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful chatting with you. It was wonderful. I agree. Thanks to all my listeners. You're the reason I do this. You can find more helpful information and resources on my consulting website, which is globalocityservicesplural.com, as well as my new radio show website, thesavvyentrepreneur.org. My door is always open for comments, questions, suggestions, or just to shoot the breeze. I'd love to hear from you. Email me at dnagel, N-A-G-E-L, at thesavvyentrepreneur.org, and I promise you'll always get an answer back from me. Now, be sure to join me again next Saturday at 11 a.m. Central, noon Eastern. But until then, I'm Doris Nagel, wishing you happy entrepreneuring.